One of the freedoms presented by the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is the ability to set your games in any era from the Stone Age <coughs> through the Roaring Twenties to modern day and beyond. Uh, with the 1920s stroke 30s being a particularly popular era, how does one go about creating the right flavour, tone and feel of a particular epoch? And where do you start if you're creating a historical setting? So I'm joined, I'm Mike Mason, the um, creative director for Call of Cthulhu Chaosium, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, by some uh, colleagues and friends. Uh, I'm joined by Oscar Rios. Would you like to say who you are? Uh, I'm Oscar Rios. I am the president of Golden Goblin Press, a Chaosium licensee. Um, and we are the proud holders of the, of the Cthulhu Invictus setting. And we have Lynn Hardy. I am, as Mike said, I am Lynn Hardy. I am the associate line editor for Call of Cthulhu for my sins. And we have Christopher. Hello. Um. <laughs> 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 Christopher Smith Adair. Um, I am a writer, sometime editor um, of uh, RPGs and fiction. Uh, I have currently coming out on <coughs> fire with it, which is why I got tagged for 1930s. Okay. My voice is going away. So <laughs> trying not to go anymore. <coughs> Shout out as if you can't hear us. I, I can't tell if I'm being picked up on the microphone or not, but I sound loud to me, so uh, I'll carry on regardless. Um, so um, I asked uh, each of the panellists before today to just have a think about a particular kind of time period where they have uh, they've done some research, they've written some material, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I asked Oscar to kind of, you know, Oscar is uh, head on show with uh, regarding Rome and all things Roman, uh, so clearly that seemed an appropriate topic for, uh, for Oscar to talk about. Lynn has a particular background in Victoriana and that kind of uh, epoch and setting, and Christopher has recently, well, just about to hit the... Uh, Hit the bookshelves is uh, a coal fire within, which is a uh, a pulp Cthulhu campaign set during the 1930s. So I asked Chris to kind of consider kind of the 20s and 30s uh, era particularly. Um, so let's let's go way back. Let's go back to the dawn of history and uh, maybe kick off with Oscar. And uh, do you want to little talk about you know what what particular interested you about ancient Rome and, and and what it's been like you know putting a book together about about that? Well. Um what I really loved about ancient Rome is like when you look at the Roman society, a lot of ways it's very similar to modern times. It's a large multicultural empire with trade going from different regions, lots of people mixing, good communication, very good roads, um, strong central government. Um, so that's all very familiar. And then you throw in the uh, you know belief in magic and uh, monsters and mysticism, uh, you know, astrology, they, they believed in these things. So one thing I love about Call of Cthulhu is if your neighbor is, is, is a warlock, if you can prove that he's a warlock, you can have him arrested, dragged into court, and, and nobody's gonna think that you're crazy. So in some ways it's a very familiar setting, in some ways it's very exotic and strange. So um, I thought it uh, was a good way to take uh, one, a great way to introduce D&D players to Call of Cthulhu because they're halfway there already with the sword and sandals and stuff and it's a good way to have standard 1920s people get into more different historical settings because in a lot of ways it's a very familiar uh, sort of society, then you, you twist it. 
Um, I've always been fascinated by by the setting, so uh, I'm glad it's uh, resonated with so many other people. Lynn, what about Victorian era stuff? Um, well, I blame Conan Doyle. Uh, you can blame Conan Doyle for an awful lot of things. Um, I grew up watching a lot of Basil Rathbone movies when I was small, so you, that kind of engenders a love of that particular era. Well, of course, you always have to remember that when Conan Doyle was writing these things, they were contemporary stories, they weren't period ones. Um, so, I don't know, maybe it's all the, um, the excuse to dress up in and, and the big frocks and run around battling monsters um, with your, your umbrella. It's just very interesting, um, period. And it's sufficiently close but far away that there's still that air of mystery about it. It's, we've got a lot of resources, which means we can go back and we can find out a lot about it, but there's still gaps that you can fill in because the, the historical record isn't as complete as you might think it was. As with a lot of historical periods, you tend to get a lot of records of the people at the top and not so much at the bottom, unless you had social crusaders and philanthropists who were you know, going out and doing these amazing studies on things. And of course it is this big era of the development of science, so you've got all that weird science thing that you can bring in as well. And so there's so much changing and developing and becoming what we would recognise as the modern world, but still not. Okay. So, Christopher, I've given you the big one, really, but why do you think 20s and 30s games are so popular, you know, particularly, obviously, in the context of Call of Cthulhu, but they are a popular era, aren't they? Uh, sure. I mean, there's, there's more material published for the 20s, particularly, than in the other era, right? For Call of Cthulhu, I don't, I don't think... That's that's incorrect, right? Um, it's it's how the game started. You know, we had the 1920s in the very first edition of Call of Cthulhu. There, were, there wasn't any um, any source material for any other era at that point. That was what you got. And if you wanted to do something in a different historical era, you made it up yourself, which of course role players can do. Um, and. Part of my understanding of why the 1920s was, well, of course, it was when Lovecraft wrote. But of course, Lovecraft was writing contemporary fiction, just like Arthur Conan Doyle was. Um, Lovecraft looks at deep time, you know, all the way to human prehistory of humanity even existing on the planet. But at the same time, he practically never wrote anything set on Earth that wasn't based in his contemporary era. He didn't even look back, you know, 20 years, really. But it references all of that, you know, family histories, all that stuff. And part of um, the 1920s being such an integral part of Call of Cthulhu is that, of course, that's when Lovecraft wrote. So while it was contemporary for him, it's not for us. But as contemporaries, when we read Lovecraft, we're seeing that past era in a way that his own readers at the time didn't. Um, and there's kind of an exoticism to it. It's a mild exoticism, right? We think we have a feeling of this era. There's, there were already moving pictures from that era, so we can watch a silent film. We, we still have a lot of fiction from the era. So we feel comfortable, but it's still just alien enough to our experience. Um, but that's also kind of a trap, I think because you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, they just don't have computers and cell phones, and you know, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot about that history that I think we take for granted. 
Um, and when you start to really look into that history, you start to see things that um, you, know, you, you just don't quite expect. We have a lot of stereotypes of that era. And at the time the Call of Cthulhu was written, it was what, um, 60 years in the past? Um, well within living memory of you know, at least people's parents who were writing the game. Like, now it's 100 years ago. Um, so 100 years ago from the time it was written was the era that uh, I was just talking about. So for some reason, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. That just like, you know, maybe it's because I'm aging. Um, <laughs> as I, and I see deep gulfs of time <laughs> within my own lifetime and going, oh, wow, you know, my perspective of that. Like, if I had been a kid playing Call of Cthulhu and gone, you know, 100 years ago, that is, you know, an incredible depth of time to me. Now, that 1920s, because I lived in a period where it wasn't 100 years ago, isn't as much. But I don't know what it's like for kids today playing Call of Cthulhu in the 1920s. You know, if it's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, really good point. That kind of time, you know, inevitably marches on. Well, it's the funny thing about Cthulhu now, isn't it? Because people say, oh, come on, we get Cthulhu now. That was the 90s. Yeah. That's yeah. old the 90s. now. Cthulhu when? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah no it's it's yeah, yeah it's that, crazy that but, um, it's not held up well you, you, <laughs> yeah, no. you, you look at the skill list and like you know well the, I, I opened up the Cathedral Now original book and, and there's got I found like there's like six pages on how modems work <laughs> 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 which at the time I didn't need to know to run the game but I mean anyway <laughs> we move we're going somewhere else um, <laughs> heading back uh, to ancient Rome for a second um I want to kind of get into, you know, the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, you're putting together, you know, a scenario or some setting material or whatever it is in the, in the kind of the, you know, the time, you know, you want to set it in. Um, where, where did you go for research? What, what, was your, what was your golden ticket to that kind of uh, um, era? My, my golden ticket, of course, was, was at first the Internet. And once you start relying on your research on the internet, you realize, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Because you can go to three different websites and they'll tell you three different things with three different dates and three different names. And you're like, okay, this is not going to be as easy as I thought. So then you start going to Amazon, you know, and you start ordering books. And like, oh, I need to know about the legions. And like, oh, for my anniversary, I got this great book and it's all about the Roman legions, everything you'd want to know about the Roman legions. I'm like, I got that. Oh, I need to know about Rome I got it okay you know it's Rome on five denarii a day it's a great little travel guide and after a few years you get several you know several bookcases worth of research material and you realize oh I probably have earned an independent associate degree in ancient history at this point um, over like a 10-year period of just researching <laughs> stuff for your game um, so every time I needed to know something, I'd start looking at the internet, realize this is dangerous, uh, then find a book on it. And usually it's a book for like, I'd get a whole book on one for one thing. And I'd learn 10 things from that book that I didn't even know I needed to know. Um, and that just accumulated over time. Uh, and did I answer the I think so, okay. yeah, that's cool. <laughs> did, I mean, um, yeah, the, the internet is not your friend. You think it is, but it's not. So same question to Lynn. I just wanted to kind of maybe uh, open out a little bit more. Um, did, I mean, do you make use of, do you, I mean, do you find a book and then within that book there's a bibliography? Do you, I, do you then go, you know, go and seek out the bibliography books? Is that, have yes. you used that approach? Yeah, I, I have used that approach um, because 
quite often I like to start with, well, actually, I tend to start with travel guides um, as the first. If, if I'm trying to set a scenario somewhere, um, I'll start with a travel guide to see if there's any interesting snippets, because quite often they will throw in, oh, and then X was murdered on this spot in 1832, and you'll think, oh, okay, let's go look for that. And then you start and you go, obviously travel books don't tend to have much in the way of big bibliographies. They do sometimes, occasionally refer you to something. But yeah, if I'm reading a book, I mean, most of my research books, they've got the, all the little coloured tabs in where I need the things and then I'll go and check the bibliography and if there's something interesting, I'll go find that. If there's a particular author that I enjoy, I will then go and find what else they've written to, to see if they've got something useful. Um, and yes, I will pour through the bibliographies and, and find what's there. Um, obviously, uh, where I live um, in the northeast of England, um, we have an amazing private library called the Lytton Phil, uh, which has been there for 200 and odd years. Uh, that has a tremendous range of books that are actually contemporary from the Victorian era, and I can go in and, and have a look through those because I'm a member. Um, so, and they do talks on various historical periods and things, so I can actually go talk to experts and listen to experts you know, that come to within 15 miles of my house so I don't have to make too much effort to go see them. And, you know, there's the train from Newcastle to London if I really have to go down there to go to the British Museum or the Petrie Museum and yeah, sit and... Yeah, 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 you have to, you know. Go it's a hard Museum, job, but library. someone's got to do it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we do have those, those other resources that you can get. Because, as Oscar says, it gets very expensive buying all your research books. <laughs> and it's nice if you can go other places. Use it's books also, on Amazon. <laughs> Yeah. Do you do if you're if you're researching, you do not need the new book. Get the used book. Um, Same for travel guides. Get the one from before because it will be really cheap. Don't get the new version because yes. it'll pretty much. You don't need to know how much your hotel is going to cost if you're looking for nice, interesting places for your characters to go visit. I'm sure. I'm sure Chris was about to mention libraries at any point. Yeah, I, I have a connection with that. Um, yeah, libraries are fantastic. Actually. One of the, the tips, I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking a lot about what we do in our own process, and some of you may be wondering, well, is any of this useful for me if I'm writing for my home group or for a convention game or whatever? Um, so there are some, some research tips that I think are useful. For one thing, libraries are a great resource, and the librarians in those libraries, research librarians, historical societies. Um, I often, if, sometimes you just don't find exactly what you're looking for, and there are lots of pieces of information. You know, if I'm just looking for some basic demographics or whatever, that you know, I am going to look at the internet and kind of go through rather than try to find for this particular town something that is not it's important but not overly vital, right? But at the same time, you know, you've got a limit on what you're going to find that way. So research librarians are accessible to you by the internet and the phone, even. and. Obviously, as, as writers, you know, we think, okay, well, we have, you know, this this permission to be bothering these people, but this is their job. So, if you're someone who loves doing research for your scenarios, um, or you're thinking about putting something on the Miskatonic uh, repository online, and you want to make sure that you've got something there, because otherwise, readers are going to look and go, "That's not the way this goes," because um, we've all probably been there at some point where someone tells us that we've come very long. Um, write them something. I've, I've uh, you know, asked about demographics, like you know, what was the cultural makeup of this area? Where was the train station? I did that for Socrates, New York, because I know where the train station is now. Yeah. Is that where it was then, and where were the hotels? 
and very nice people will respond. I've had one time where, and it was something that I was able to find somewhere else, I don't even remember what it was, um, where someone didn't get back to me, but historical societies, and generally they don't ask and you don't have to say why you're even looking for it. You're just doing research, you're asking for some help. And they can provide that. Yeah. There's a, a just great story, very short, of, on your point. I was researching uh, New, uh, New London, Connecticut for a scenario I was writing, and I couldn't find out where the what the high school was in the 20s. I found the high school and I looked, and it was built in 54. Yeah. And I'm like, I've got a clue that they go to the high school to speak to. Uh, you know the to, to you know it's part of the clue trail about how they were in high school. So I called the like, and I just couldn't find it. So finally, I called the New London uh, Historical Society, and I got there. And have you ever asked a D and D nerd about their character? <laughs> that was the conversation. This guy was so excited that somebody yeah. called and said, "I want to know what." And he was like, "Well, first of all, there was a boys' high school and a girls' high school. There weren't." So now I had a. a, a you know, even a better clue trail because they had to go to two different stops. And he goes, it was located on this street and the boys one was located on this street. And I was like, oh my God, this is, and I gave him a credit in the, in the, in the book. But it was just so wonderful because this guy was so excited to give me so much information. That was great. That really, you know, enriched my scenario in a way I didn't expect before. Yeah, um, for 1920s, 1930s, and even to some extent the um, you know, 1880s or 1890s, you know, this is, the 1920s and 1930s are moving out of living memory, but they're close enough. So, you know, practically anything you're setting in the United States, there's a historical society probably for that community. Even small communities often have historical societies. And, you know, they have access to that information. And there are times where I've asked a question and they've gotten back to me and said, I have no idea. It's like, okay, cool. If you don't know, then no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> one of my players is going to go, uh, but actually, no, no one knows. There's at a certain point, at a certain point, you realize, and this probably needs to come up at some point, you realize that you can make some stuff up about yeah, history because there may be a historical record somewhere, but no one has easy access to it, and you just have to do it. Like, and I usually go to great things. Like, I wrote a scenario recently where, like, I hate inventing a, a whole street in this, you know, real place, but I did. But you know, like, I sure it's like, okay, it could connect here, and here's where some houses could be, and there it goes. Um, but again, so you do a certain it. amount of research, and then go, all right. Now I've given myself permission to step back and go, I can, I can make some stuff up, because that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do. But you're following a great literary tradition by doing that, because of course, back to Conan Doyle, 221B Baker Street didn't exist. He specifically gave Holmes an address that was not real. It was only when they redid the London Street Plan that 221B came into existence, and the poor beggars that live there get people <laughs> knocking on the door asking to speak to Sherlock Holmes. Um, it was a bank for a while, but I think it's apartments or something now. Yeah. So, you know, so there is that tradition, and this is one of the things Mike's always going, yeah, you're not going to be too accurate, are you, Lee? <laughs> like, I'll try. It's, uh, I, I, I just want a, a quick secret tip that I use um, it's, it's it's probably well I mean I guess you could use it elsewhere around the world but uh, Google Maps is quite interesting if you use street map view so if I'm writing a scenario set in London it's you know sometime in the past a lot of London has changed over the years we know a lot, a lot rebuilt after World War II etc but there are streets where clearly that's an original street or that's an original address so you can street map the view and you can walk down the street on your in the, and go like okay so I'm going to set the I'm going to set the house here and then that's the house I'm now going to look what can I see from the house oh there's a park well that park clearly has always been there I do a little 
do a double check on you know somewhere else in an older map if I yeah that park's been there so I can you know start to build the color of the you know the, the neighborhood just by using a Google map and, and a couple of other you know historical sources and you've got a lot of information there from very little time spent hmm. you know if you're in a rush and you just want to throw something together it's a really easy way to do it can I um that actually is a good segue to another resource that I found while doing a jump fire within. Um, I had a town that the heroes go to, and this was where I'm looking for the train station and whatnot. So there's a uh, project called the What Was There project, um, and it uses Google Maps as its interface, and it's a whatwasthere.com, fairly simple. Uh, so you can put in a city. Um, say Socrates, New York. And what it does is it tags photos in there, historical photos that people can upload. And it has a location tag and uh, era or year tag, right? And you might have multiple ones. So there's a hotel. I'm using a historical hotel. It's the 1930s, so we don't have bars, you know, at least legally at that, that point in the United States. So I know that in the past, from my research, that this hotel had a bar. <coughs> what does it have in the 1930s? So even though I'm not reading a whole you know, document on this hotel, I'm looking at a picture of what it looked like from the street. And I can see the sign there that says, oh, here's a bar. Here's the general store. Um, here's what this, this area looks like. And there's potentially hundreds of photos for any given town. Socrates is not a huge town, but it's kind of a crossroads town. There's a lot of history there. Um, you know, you look at, and, and you can scroll it out, you know, the same way that you would Google Maps, right? So if you want to look at the United States, you just have all these little dots, these little pinpoints, as if you were like, oh, I want directions there. And you can see, and then it's just the scroll of uh, history. For some reason, Rhode Island, because um, I was looking up uh, Providence uh, before this, just you know, testing it out against the I've used it for a while. A lot of their photos are from 1954, but they're of historical buildings. So you can kind of see at least that. So you can get some, some kind of there. Cool resource, which I kind of tried. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, so, in getting into a, you know, getting into a uh, a particular era, in terms of you know turning that into game material, are there any particular kind of challenges or easy wins? Um, uh, I, I'm going to give you every, every, and for those of you taking notes, you're going to want to take this down. Uh, 20,000, 200,000 names. It's a uh, website. I'm, you know, look it up. It's basically lists of names by like ethnicity. So if you need a list of Gothic names or Hebrew names or Aramaic names or um, Iberian names, they'll have literally pages and pages of names. When you're populating characters for a setting, you don't want your Brythonic barbarian named Bob. Um, you're, you're going to want a, a, a period, actual, historic name so that your players, when they meet this guy, um, they're connecting with him in a way that is exotic, that's putting them in that, in that spot. Um, so name generators, by history, by period, by culture, are invaluable when you're uh, populating your NPCs. Um, uh, and you want to avoid ones with a lot of the same first letter because that'll com it'll completely confuse your character, uh, your your players. Um, 
what are the other oh and for those of us writing in the classic 1920s uh, go to your uh, census and find the 100 most popular names for that year um, because then you get all of these really weird names that we haven't had. So uh, when your players are, you know, you know, they meet an Emmett or, you know, a Victoria or a Eustace, you know, it does take them out of the modern time. Like Eustace, I haven't heard anybody named Eustace. And well, it was a popular name X amount of years ago. So that's a very quick, easy trick to flavor the history of a setting for your players with very minimal effort. Yeah, I think it's a really good tip. I think names, that's a really good point, Oscar, is the, uh, when you're trying to kind of, yeah, as you say, set that tone and flavor of the setting straight away, the names of the characters, that the, the NPCs particularly, really do help to kind of, um, you know, give that immediacy to it. Yeah, it's a great idea, yeah. So any um, um, challenges? There was a question. Do we want to take questions? I think, I think yeah, I, yeah, sure. I was going to come to questions at the end, but yeah, yeah sure. Ricardo, yeah. In writing called Cthulhu games uh, for England or whatever, I, I always wonder what, you know, all of the details are kind of in my head and in the source material, but how much of it to tell the players because I feel like too much of it kind of detracts from the case of the story, but not enough and you might as well be in any setting. And I, I find that I tend towards the latter. I tend to not mention enough with details. Uh, what, what, how do you, what do you feel is a good balance uh, between the flavor and, you know, and, and, and the case of the story, I guess? I would say it depends on your group. Um, there are going to be there are groups of friends I have that I can stop the game and talk for 20 minutes about the history of this, and they'll love it. And there are groups of players that I will give them five minutes of history, and they start taking out their phones and texting. It really depends on the group. Um, your job is to keep your players engaged, interested, and having a good time. Sometimes 20 minutes of expedition of historical context will work. Sometimes five. Sometimes none. Um, there's no easy answer. You've got to go with what your players, uh, what, what the rhythm of your group is. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my take on that kind of thing is that your players have turned it for a game, not a history lesson. And um, you can show the history through the game. We, you know, one of the reasons why many people like Call of Cthulhu is you, you can get a sense of history. You can learn a few things, perhaps, you know. Uh, but, um, but actually, they've turned it for a game. And so if the history comes before the game, uh, but I'd say for the majority of players I meet, uh, that would be an issue. Um, but I was just right. There are, there are sometimes there is a group where they, they do uh, they just want to let's just put the game down for a second. Let's talk about this this history we've encountered, right, right. and that's cool too. But look around your group because if not everyone is going, someone's not having a good time, and mm -hmm. you know, let's not you know let's make sure everyone has a good time. So it's a balance thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it as they say, listen to your players, watch your players, because the amount of history they want might vary throughout the course of that game. There might be something that they're very familiar with. Obviously, if you're running a game uh, as Americans in America in the 1920s, you have that cultural reference and touchstone. So a British group might need a bit more. Or, you know, if you're running an English scenario with an American group, they may need a little bit more in terms of setting and support to understand why things are happening the way they are in that scenario. But it really is as people have said, gauging it based on your players, they will usually let you know. They need to know enough to understand what's going on around them. 
but they don't need to know that on Thursday at 2 p.m. you can catch this particular bus and it will cost you X. You know, that's, that's lovely information and I'm great that you found it, but if it's not helping them move the story forward, it's just kind of extraneous fluff, really. Sure enough. Um, yeah, sure. Quick FYI, uh, 1954 Providence was the location of the big Hurricane Carol mm -hmm. that flooded by big portions of the city. And I can very much imagine that the photo history of that would be quite thorough. Right, there were that was a notorious hurricane that did substantial damage. Actually, find markers on the buildings that are being Right, yeah, I've seen some of the markers from some of the earlier ones, the big gale. It was uh, led to the creation of the flood barrier that they put in on the on the river and so forth. That's, that probably, was, uh, that's probably why a lot of those birds come specifically from that. Yeah, yeah. Like Katrina, basically. Yeah. The, um, sort of just building on what we've just been talking about in terms of how much history in the actual game, um, we've, we've had this conversation over the last year or so. Lynn has been, um, well, finished. Uh, working on a, on a campaign called the Children of Fear, which is set in set during the 1920s, but in uh, across India, China, and Tibet. Um, and so, um, culturally, there's a lot of stuff. Certainly, I, as a Westerner, an English guy, don't really understand or don't get. I don't have the cultural references. So, in terms of the information you've had to relay, you've had to kind of try to provide some sort of context. So, as a keeper. I understand why people are acting this same certain way, uh, so I can convey that to the players. And we've kind of had this debate about how do we present this information to the group as a whole? Mm. And we've kind of gone between kind of reading out pages of script about, you know, this is this, to, and we kind of, well, do you want to talk about yeah, where we, we ended we, up? Yeah, we basically ended up with um, little handouts of what your investigator knows. So obviously there's the, there's the codicil to this that if your investigator is local to the area, obviously they get way more information because it's their culture, their background, they know these things. But if you're a Westerner visiting this area, we did the little handouts um, and one of them actually says, here be dragons, uh, which is Tibet in the 1920s. You know, as far as you're concerned, there is just a big blank gap on the map with here be dragons written on it. Um, and it was the sort of, this is the sort of thing that a Westerner in this part of the world, in this era, would know. That's it. Anything above and beyond that, you're going to be finding out through the game as you interact with it. And that, that was about the easiest way to do it in the end, because otherwise we were putting a lot on the keeper to sort of sift through the support material that they needed to run anything in that, area, um, that particular area. And, and there was way too much onus on them to then deliver what the players needed, what when they might not necessarily know what the players needed in terms exactly, of yeah. and you, you had this vision of the the keeper, you know, going through all this with the players, and the players' eyes are all glazing over after like half an hour of this. So, so we're kind of trying to make it accessible and easy, kind of into it. I mean, that's I, I, I imagine quite a similar issue with uh, with Roman times. Obviously, there is significantly cultural differences in terms of oh, yes. and, yes. and, and get, conveying that not only to the keeper but through the keeper to the players. How is that best done? You know, how have you approached that? Um, what's great about the Roman era is that the the, the politics. And, and some of those details change from place to place to place. Um, there's one great scenario, it's not out yet, uh, it's that I wrote and it uh, deals with the, shortly, it deals with the Middle East, it deals with Antioch and the Romans, the Christians and the Jews. 
And in this period, Judaism was outlawed and Christianity was considered like a weird, dangerous cult. Except in the East, where they really didn't care and they were much more permissive. So the players kind of came in with this attitude about how these groups would relate and they get to you know Antioch which is in Syria and the locals there we are like yeah as long as they don't bother anybody pay their taxes sure it's against the law but we're not going to arrest anybody so it was a, a great little you're, you're sneaking the history in and the politics in of you know when you think of the Roman Empire the Roman Empire is 40 provinces, you know, 40, 44 provinces, and all of them have a slightly different culture, rhythm, ethnic background, history, folklore. So when you, when, you know, you think of the Roman Empire, you're not thinking of one thing. Even you can think of regions, and there's like four or five different regions that have their own flavor. You know, playing in the East is different from playing in North Africa, which is different from playing in England, which isn't playing in Gaul and Spain, um, so which is why I love of the setting so much because I can set scenarios widely apart and they're wildly different scenarios with the politics and the monsters and the cults that live there. Um, and it's all connected by roads. So I can have my players sail or drive or ride from one area to the next to the next with relative ease. Um, and I can have all of these scenarios accessible by one group. I don't even know if I answered the question. I, think I just kind of like nerded out on it. Was a, it was a good answer either way, yeah. so it's, 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 it's not, not, not a problem. But it, 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 was, it, was, it was great because they were like, um, in the scenario, it was, uh, they were looking into war crimes in, um, you know, in the Third Jewish War. And all of these refugees fled that area to Syria with all of their problems and histories. So the whole mystery in Syria started in Judea, and these people brought their... Pro so there was like Jewish bakers who had been terrorists, and there were you know uh, Roman soldiers who had committed war crimes, and now they were running a bar. Um, so it was basically a mystery with all of the, the criminal acts taking place 20 years ago, and it was a story of revenge in, in Syria. And they're investigating, and it's like, all this ties, all this ties back to the war in Judea. So you, you're, you're teaching the history, but, you know, God help us, it's so contemporary. And the Middle East is still a problem area, and you still have imperialistic powers trying to make sense of it in these. Um, so I think, historical settings are a great way to explore contemporary issues um, and kind of show that you know if you don't learn your history you're gonna repeat it well guess what even if you know your history you're gonna probably end up repeating it because <laughs> people are people and we're gonna have the same uh, we're gonna make the same mistakes over and over and over well, the phrase is those who know their history are doomed to stand by and watch, and watch it, it be repeated, repeated. yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely um, Christopher I was gonna I was gonna kind of come back to you and sort of say about um, how do you deal with problematic history? Um, carefully. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good answer. <laughs> um, so well, I wish I had like great tips on it. Um, you know, I have a committee idea. Um, I often deal with problematic history. Um, 
part of what I do when I'm writing something, if I know that I'm writing something for a particular era, a lot of, a lot of times I've been invited to go to a project where I pitch something for a project, and so here's, here's the era that it's in, here's the area that it's in, here's what it's dealing with. So what I have to look for is like, what's, what's my way in? What interests me about that era? And so of course you're looking at history, and lots of history, if not all history, is at least somewhat problematic. Right, um, that's just kind of its nature. So when you find something that's fascinating, it's probably fascinating because something was going on, and there were winners and there were losers, and probably more losers than winners. Right. So you try to be sensitive. Um, you do your research. You try to approach it from um, a place of openness, I suppose. Um, Sort of what I was talking about at the outset with the 1920s, where there's sort of a trap because we had these expectations of what mindset was, what life was like, and then when you dig deeper, you find out that's that's not not true necessarily. Um, some of it is, you know, stereotypes have some basis usually in something, but it's often distorted. Um, and I think it's something that uh, I'm still learning how to do. I guess I would say so. I, maybe, I, maybe I should be asking people. Um, you know, I, I think that we're getting to the point where we, we look at these things and we go, okay, you know, how can we be better about this and, and representation and expanding what we're looking at? Um, I think you know sometimes we see pushback from people who say, no, this is this is what history was, um, and again, we maybe that's not really true, so. When we say, oh, you know, there were people who weren't just a white homogenous mass around them, they were the people who were active and doing things and, um, you know, capable and everything else, but there were always exceptions to the rule. You may not have been able to. I think that's something for like player characters too. People are like, well, I can't be, you know, an African American doctor. Like, well, there were African American doctors. You know, and you're playing a character who can be exceptional, right? Um, so none of that's necessarily a good answer. I guess it's it's mostly an answer in that you know this is something that be having it present in your mind. I think is the first thing, and then figuring out what to do, and then testing your own assumptions constantly, and figuring out and going, what can I do to? Like so, there's there's definitely examples of where I went. Oh, I can't have this sort of character doing this because of this historical fact. Um, but then realizing, no, there's a way I can can bring this in and actually like broaden you know, who is in this scenario. Um, can't include everyone, of course, in every scenario because you know human existence is so varied. But as many different things you can do, I think is what you should be trying no, to do. I, I think that's, that's really good. Yeah. Um, as for problematic history, my favorite setting has institutional slavery, um, which is hard. Um, I think when you deal with problematic history, you need to be honest. You cannot deny that the problem was there. You can't gloss it over. You need to at least address it. Like, yes, you know, we have slavery in ancient Rome. It's part of the game. Um, we have a lot of, you know, it's a patriarchal society. It's part of the game. I had an editor saying, hey, can we gender swap this soldier and make her female? And I'm like, no, because women weren't allowed in the legions. Um, it's not part of history. We can't do it. But I can make really cool female characters that had a lot of power and agency. We just have to do it in a way that it's historically accurate. 
how about a really rich, powerful actress? Um, you know, I mean, she's an inf- she's infamous because she's an actress. So um, she's basically, it's like Khloe Kardashian. It's like everybody loves her, everybody knows her, nobody really wants her as part of the family. Um, so it's part. It's the you know, it's a weird part of the history, but it's you know, you can work around it, and you can't deny it and gloss over it because then you invalidate the struggles of all of those people in those historical periods. Um, all history is is problematic. Has problematic. You know, you, but it's what gives these historical periods their character. Um, you know, you, you can't deny these problems. You have to accept them and, and, in a way, honor the problems. Because in, by honoring the problems, you honor the struggles and the improvements we've made from these historical periods. I think it's also worth saying. I mean, looking at old history books about history, there is the white homogenous. You know, mindset of the writing of the time. However, we're very fortunate in that you know history has broadened and been looked at again and more in depth um, in you know more recent years. So you can find new historical works that look a little deeper. Um, and for instance, you know, uh, looking at things like revolutionary France, um, where you know you would think, well, all the characters are going to be male because they're all soldiers. Well. There is historical precedent for for, for women, um, you know, taking on the guise of a male to be a soldier or a sailor or a cowboy or a wagon driver or whatever it is. There is historical precedent. It really happened. There are people that did this. And um, so that means, well, if it happened in real life, then surely it can happen in the game too. Yeah. And some were trans and some were just adopting a disguise to have that life. Um, so you can, you can get a huge, as Mike said, there, are, there will usually be a historical precedent somewhere. And of course, you've got to be careful with the books that you look at, because obviously the older they are in terms of historical books, they will be an interesting read because they will give you a view into the mindset of that period. I love reading the Marie Travel Guides from the, the Victorian era, because they will very much give you the idea of what a rich white English person was expecting to find wherever they went. And that can be very informative. But obviously we do have modern writers who are going back, who are looking at interesting things. And, you know, the, the Elizabethan project that may, will happen at some point um, before we all die. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there are some beautiful books being written now about the influences of Africa in the Elizabethan era, Black Tudors, uh, all sorts of interesting books that are reframing that history to widen it out. And there are fascinating stories in there that we're not aware of because our lens was very focused. So we are lucky in the fact that we're in an era where people are trying to make sure that there well, is more these interesting These ancient voices stuff. and people are actually now being seen and heard, whereas yes. before they... They didn't appear on the radar. They, yeah. Yeah, they, they were, were invisible. You know, yeah. But that doesn't mean they weren't there. That doesn't mean um, they weren't there. I have uh, this actually a resource. So speaking of guidebooks, right, uh, one thing that I discovered recently. So uh, in the 1930s, there was a New Deal program called the Federal uh, Writers Project. Right? And one thing that I, I knew about that project, what I found out, is that in, um, one of the things they did was uh, travel guides. 
they hired you know, out-of-work writers or under-employed you know, writers to write travel guides. Um, and there were a couple of reasons they did this. One was to hopefully stimulate the economy, that if you read a book on this and whatever little money you have in the Great Depression, you're going to go travel somewhere. Um, I don't know how successful that was. But they all were also looking at um, creating a self-portrait of America. So these travel guides were written by people who weren't necessarily travel writers, I would assume, some of the time. Um, and one thing that was remarkable for the era was how expansive they were in looking at not just the experience we expect, um, not just in the travel guides, but just in general, what the Federal Writers Project did. There was a lot of looking at immigrant communities. There was a lot of looking at African-American communities. Um, so it is a way that you can like look at these things. So one of the travel guides that I found um, for Rhode Island, you know, it had great you know, snappy prose, uh, very witty, had a great look at what life was like culturally in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, so it was this great snapshot had a period map. Um, so it was, it was amazing for that. Um, the Federal Writers Project, a lot of their books are available online to you right now. The Internet Archive, uh, which is a project that was originally designed to you know, archive the internet and then went on to let's have librarians and historical centers and whatnot digitize books and they're there. Some of them you have to actually check out. You have to get yourself a digital library card. Some of them you can just read online. And if, so if you go to archive.org, type in Federal Writers Project, and then you know, possibly another permutation like I want Massachusetts, you'll find all sorts of things, including ethnographies, oral histories. Um, one of the big things they did, speaking of underrepresented history, is um, the Slave Narrative Collection, which you can find a lot of it on the um, Library of Congress's website, which was people who were still living and talking about their life as a slave in, you know, in the 1930s, talking about their past. Uh, 20,000 narratives were collected. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's cool. So that, and there's books like Folklore of Greeks in the Tampa Area. And some of these were like monographs, things like that. So good resource. <coughs> quick, quick aside, you, you all know the Michelin star system, right, for restaurants. Mm -hmm. You know how that started? It's because the Michelin brothers who sold tires realized they weren't making enough money, so they wrote the guidebooks to get people driving their cars so they would wear out their tires so they would buy more. <laughs> that is where they came from. And on that note, uh, we've got a, a little you know, more time left, uh, and I did want to kind of open things out to questions. If there are any particular um, questions, we will take them. Um, I think, Murph, you were... I just had a, a side when you were talking about sources that you can come up with. Uh, I found that museum shops often have like the weirdest vanity projects from academics that doesn't get seen anywhere else that you can find there. And as an example, I was at Skipton, in Yorkshire and at the castle and came across a book by a guy who normally writes Tudor naval history. And he wrote about the gallery conspiracy of 1600 with James and Lincoln. That's my friend's family's castle. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The, fa the Fatterini family uh, were jewelers, royal jewelers, um, and Skipton Castle is their family home. And our mate Jules, who's a big live role player, uh, that's his family's castle. I was looking through his bathroom window. Yeah, we've we've done live role playing events there, but you know the castle. Oh yeah, there's nobody coming in this weekend. Yeah, you can have that bit of the castle. 
you've already touched on this already, but how do you get a lot of history in there without just doing a lot of uh, the exposition dumps? <laughs> oh, that is very tricky, actually. One of the things that I try to do is, you know, I, I do more research. I do more research notes than actually appear in the same. One thing, it just gives me a grounding of, like, I know I now have this whole toolkit, and then figuring out what can actually go. And sometimes it pains me to, like, not put something in. Um, but I think, you know, there's no hard and fast rule for it, but attempt to incorporate the history as much, and Oscar kind of talked about this a little bit, um, incorporate that history into the actual stuff. It's part of an NPC, it's part of an event, and you don't have to go into a lot of detail. Sometimes it's just that little thing about, oh, here's you know, how we live, here's how the taxes work, or whatever, and it's a brief aside. And then if you're running for your group and the group is like, oh wait, you know, or maybe on a break, they will kind of want to know more and you can like, you know, wow them with some more details. But you don't want to go too, too heavy into it, yeah. I think. Yeah. Don't forget, don't forget, it's a game. Yeah. One of the tricks I like to use is just have something really weird and random happen. And then the players go like, wait, what? Yeah. And I'll say, well, you see, the, the, the Romans used to watch the chickens eat corn and in the pattern of them eating corn, they would design the future. It was a form of divination. Because I'm like, okay, before the race, somebody comes in with a chicken and they spread some corn and then they all watch chicken eat. And my players would be like, wait, what? <laughs> and then I get the, ch basically you sneak the history in, yeah. in a yeah. piece of cheese. Right. <laughs> and, and they don't really realize that you're educating them. So you just throw in a random weird stuff that your players are like, okay, hold on, what? And then you get to, and then it's like four or five sentences, you gotta keep it brief. Um, and then they've learned something, they don't even realize it, and the game continues. Yeah, but you know you've won when two sessions later, and they're trying to find something out, they go, let's get some chickens and some yes, let, We need to hire a log here and get some chickens and thread some, and again, it's like, okay. Well, the guy who has, the guy with the chickens isn't available, but the guy who watches clouds is. And then you've snuck in a whole nother little, and they're like, oh God, this is fucking bonkers. It's immediately evocative, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it intrigues people. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of a question for everybody, but when it comes to actually, when you, when you begin to write a scenario, does you, since they're so historically based, do they begin with a seed of a location or a time, and then you sort of shoot more of a story? Or is it kind of the other way around? Really? Can, can yes. worms. It, uh, it, the answer is yes. Yeah. It, it, Sometimes no. You'll get everyone you ever ask that question, you will get a different answer, which is fine. But um, perhaps the best answer to that is to say, please come and ask ourselves, and there's other writers uh, certainly around the economic on. Just come and ask us, and we'll tell you what we do. It's probably the easiest way to answer that question. Uh, to back up just one question on what was talking previously, um, when you're writing scenarios, isn't it simply just really what we're getting around is a, a show dome? Uh, don't tell policy, especially at a table. As much you, as you, do, you don't want to put people to sleep, uh, even if you love Roman history, and I do. But um, but yeah, but we want to show them through acts or through what story we're telling rather than saying, here's a big info dump. Right. Here, read 15 pages of history before we start the scenario on Friday, and then no one shows up because we have done homework. Because who would we do that? Well, we would, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of think what we're getting at, though, right? I th yeah, I think you're, you're spot on in that regard. I mean, I mean, the, the thing is that when, if you're writing your own scenarios and you're doing your research, you, you will do way more research, as Christopher said. We've all got notebooks full of stuff that we've researched, that we've not used, that we've rejected. But 
<laughs> piles of the things. Um, but that is there, and that will help you flesh out the world in your mind. And if you know how it's working, then you will communicate that to your players, even if you're not telling them everything. And that will come through. But you will be picking out the juicy bits that are going to help that story move along. But because you have that background and understanding, you will know which bits are the good bits to pick to give to them yeah. at the right times. It's, it's thinking about the history as context to your game. Ultimately, you're there to play a game. So in terms of if you're writing a scenario for someone else to then you know, read and use, um, then um, ultimately, number one, your first priority is ensuring there is a game for them to use and, and to play. And so um, what you don't want, in one sense, is the history getting in the way of that. But you want the history to provide the context so it all makes sense and it's an even more enjoyable experience because, hey, why, why are you doing it otherwise? So it's working out how to build that history into the, the text, as it were. And sometimes it isn't actually in, in that bit of the scenario. It's actually in a, a box next to it just that, that gives you, the, as a keeper, the context that then you can then feed into it. Or as Christopher has said, uh, and Oscar has said, it's kind of like you know, giving the NPC you know, the appropriate look, the, the speech, the, the, the key bullet points of things they will say that, that seed that kind of history. And, and if players then want to kind of really dig into that, they can ask the NPC and they will say, well, I'll tell you about the tax system here or whatever. But if they're not interested, they won't ask the question. Right. And you move on. Yeah, is kind of, I think, the answer. Yes. Uh, just to add a couple of other resources I've come across. Uh, Christopher mentioned the Library of Congress, uh, but the, the Library of Congress also has online a list of newspapers, uh, historical ones. So if you want to go see what newspapers may have been in a certain part of the U.S., a certain time, it will have a list. And you can, uh, uh, it also has digitized images of those newspapers as well. So you can go through and read them. I don't know how many of us look at headlines today and think, oh, this is weird. This would be a good you know, scene for a story. You could go through the same thing for an 1850 newspaper in Vermont. And then maybe your scene for a uh, story or a scenario, what the case was. Um, I also found fire insurance maps are a great source for detailed street maps of, of cities back in the uh, mid, late 1800s, even early 1900s in cases where uh, they'll show you the streets and the building locations as well. No, I think, I think it's a, that's a really good point because I, I, exactly what I do. Um, there's, uh, when um, books come into me, uh, maybe it's a particular location or setting or, or era, and, um, and it's all really cool stuff. And I, I'm kind of like reading, thinking, like, I don't think it's weird enough. <laughs> and I, I kind of want some historical weirdness just to throw in, just some little touches here and there. And uh, I find the easiest way to do that is to just go and find a period newspaper from that location and just go through the archives and these headlines will jump out about you know fish man spotted on the beach what's that about right well that can go in because you know hey who doesn't want a fish man on the beach and uh and so on but yeah i think it's a really it's a very it's a, 
it can be a little time, it can be a rabbit hole of getting into it, but it's, but it can't, you can get some real juicy uh, stuff that nobody else has picked up before. Yeah. And the, even the letter, the, the newspaper letter, you can search for keywords. Yeah. Yeah. Search for Fishman. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the joy of Call of Cthulhu is that there is so much weird stuff out there anyway. It really doesn't necessarily take a huge amount of work for you to just go. And you've got your full form scenario. They kind of write, they kind of write itself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they do. You open up a history it. book and you, they kind of write itself. I know you're itching, so. That question? Actually, was pretty close to my question. Okay, so. Uh, <laughs> but I can phrase it in a different way. So, question to everybody. Uh, per era, the nature of cosmic horror itself has to change a little bit. Like, what is. The fear of the unknown is a very different thing to a Roman gladiator than it is to a British noble than it is, or is it? Is it? Is it? When we we're all, when you're on your own, in a dark place, it's very quiet. There's nobody else around. I think it's the same fear that Roman that Roman legionnaire fears uh, felt as I stand in a wood with no one around. I think I'm lost. It's getting dark. I think it's a very similar fear. Now there may be levels to that and different, different permutations I might not be expecting a, a, a demon to walk out of the wood but I, I still get I can still get creeped out in the same way so I think I think I think there are differences but I think there's also not differences yeah, how, the, how you think that fear is going to manifest the, the yeah. bogeyman basically your bogeyman will change but that sort of underlying primal fear of I'm out here on my own with no support, yeah. It's, it's people are people thing. no matter what historical yeah. period they're in. They still have the same hopes, dreams, desires, fears, anxieties, insecurities, whether they're living in ancient Rome or Chicago in the 20s or, you know. We, 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 I mean, humanity has always had the same worries. We, we worry about, do we, have we got enough money or can I go and hunt something to eat today? Can, can I can I sleep tonight in a relatively safe place? If I go there, will I be murdered? You know, I, we all have that. You know, that's never changed. You know, we we have the you know things are safer and better, but we still have. You know, I'm pretty sure everyone in this room at some point has had one of those thoughts occur to them, and um, so uh, human emotion is is what it is in that sense. We can draw from that. Says what scares as well. It's what scares me. Is what scares probably a lot of people as well. Yeah. Uh, they will play off the same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very true. Uh, one day. At the back. Yeah. Hi. There's a site called Map Junction, which is fantastic. I because I tend to build stuff in Boston, and so it has a uh, historic fire map all the way back to the 1600s. Yeah. But overlaid with modern Google Maps, and you can just slide the screen so you can you know see what's moved, what's here, what's not. My question: We deal with problematic history. So you've dropped your players into a period, as we've said, any period can be problematic. Yet they still want to be modern, progressive, liberal, you know. How do we navigate that to sort of keep the, you know, you want them to do whatever they want, but still sort of, so they have a sense of Okay, it comes back to what I said earlier, it's a game. Okay. And it's about your group, as, as Oscar's knowing your group. Now, if you want to play the 1920s and you don't want to, your group makes a group decision that actually you don't want to tackle some of the more, you know, awful kind of dimensions of 1920s era play, 
that is your prerogative as a group to do. Equally, your group may say, no, we want to, we want to look into this. We want to, we, you know, we want to, we want to, you know, explore that. Um, and that's equally as valid. But ultimately, it's each group will decide. But I think imposing one or the other on a group of people without that kind of, you know, a little bit of a chat beforehand, that's probably, that's going to lead you down a path that maybe some or all of the group aren't going to be happy because they it's not what their expectation is it's about expectations and um, even if it's just saying up front we're going to be playing in this particular setting uh, we're going to be playing in the roman era um we are going to be dealing with you know to some extent uh, the issue of slavery in, in ancient rome it's not going to be it's not part of the main plot but it does figure i'm going to let you know that if anyone's got a problem with that then we need to talk about it before we get into it um but i think it's all about context and and you know what what players want to explore and how they go with it's it. It's consent, isn't it? Consent, I think. Yeah. yeah, and I think something to look at too is, um, especially when we're talking about like the 1920s or 1930s, for instance, where you're like, okay, well, this is what people were like in that time. <laughs> Definitely a conversation with your players. <coughs> to some extent, well, it would be unusual for a group of six investigators to have a more modern mindset about about certain things, like, oh, well, none of our characters are you know, racist, for instance, or try not to be, or whatever you want. But there were people back then that were like that. So it's not, again, the same way that you can say, well, I want to expand to look at what roles could women actually perform um, more than we often think, right? Um, the player characters can, again, be exceptional people who, rather than go, well, I don't want to get down, well, I want some of that to be there in the milieu, I don't want to embody being an awful person, necessarily. There were people who had different views. And the thing is, for us with producing these books, we try to make sure that the information is there so that if groups do want to tackle it, they've got that information to, to hand. But as Mike said, it's up to the individual groups because some of our players have to deal with this nonsense on a daily basis in their real lives they're not necessarily going to want to have to deal with it in their game as well because that's supposed to be their escape, their light relief. But other groups may want to look at it. So you just make sure that information is there, you talk to your players, you come to a mutual agreement, as Mike said, and then you move forward with what, how you're going to tackle it. The other way to look at this um, is very simply, um, some people you know, will look at one of our books and say, well, you know, you've kind of you know, it doesn't really go into the history enough, or, or it's not accurate. Uh, this thing. It's like, well, we're playing in a world where there's Cthulhu. Yeah. If you can accept Cthulhu is in this world, you can accept that the world is slightly not complete mirror of reality. It isn't. It's never going to be. It's a game. I keep saying it's a game. It will ne it's not, if you want to play a highly accurate, detailed, historical experience it's not a role-playing game go and do a reenactment society go and do a living history project and that's all cool and dandy but this is a game and if Cthulhu can exist in it then anything else can and it's cool so if all your characters are female soldiers in a Roman legion that's cool as far as I'm concerned because that's what your group has decided to do 
may not be what Oscar wants to do, but well, there are ways but, around that. But there, there are exactly. There are, you can, exactly. You, she can be an auxiliary troop from a tribe. There you go. She can be from Gaul. She can be from North Africa. She can be, there are plenty of places where women did wield weapons. The rank-and-file Roman legion was not one of them. So there are ways to do it historically accurately. And then there are ways, there are times when you just say, screw it. Like yesterday, we were doing a Dark Ages game, and I had plague doctors. And I have a box text in it saying, yes, I know plague doctors are not period to the Dark Ages. I know that they don't exist for another 400 years. I'm putting them in anyway because they're cool. Um, so I actually have that in the scenario, like, yes. They don't, they're not really, but they're so cool and we wanted to include them. And I wanted to have the catacombs of Paris, but they don't exist in the Dark Ages either. And I'm like, okay, so they're the abandoned old Roman limestone mines. I don't have them as the catacombs because I already said, screw it, we're having plague doctors. <laughs> so I've already done it once, so I have to be historic. So sometimes you, for the sake of the narrative, you just say, yeah. Yeah, we're violating the history. Because, again, um, my players were talking cats, fighting the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. And cats don't talk. And there is no Cthulhu mythos. So I've already strike three. Why not? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that hits the nail on the head. Is that, you know, we're, we're game writers. We're not, you know, we're not actually historians. As much as, you know, as, much as we, we know a bit of history, we, we know, we're not necessarily historians. And we're not writing historical texts. We're writing games. And sometimes and it's, it's not a mistake, it's a decision. It's, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah we're and having we're, and we're doctors fa- and screw it. Really and cool. you <laughs> rightly did, you put in, you know, I know that I'm wrong Yeah, I here, did that, because I don't want to get emails. Cool. Because, yeah, because <laughs> we don't want to get emails. But anyway, okay, we've got room for a couple more. There's a, yeah. the bearded guy in there. Yeah, the one right at the back. Is that this is gentleman. I can see the edge of your T-shirt. Yes, you, yes. Yes, that, that man there. Hi. Hi. Hi, Dan. resources as a librarian. Um, the Internet Archive is great. It's going to get better because now that the industry lobby um, public domain 1923 moves forward, we're going to start to see a lot more stuff digitized from that kind of late 1920s period where a lot of people are running. Um, local newspaper databases are great. Uh, there's a British newspaper archive which covers the entire country. Uh, you could probably get a subscription for one month and then cancel it. It's been a great resource. Um, I also wanted to highlight one other piece which was um, from dealing with your library. Is interlibrary loan, if whatever service you've got, is also great because sometimes you need like a really specialized book and it's too expensive or you don't want to have it on the shelf because you know you're just going to need it for this one scenario. You can order from another library, have it scanned, scan in what you need, and then send it back, and then you know, got it. Yeah, I, I use libraries that way almost exclusively. If, if I can't find it through a library, that's when I buy the book. Otherwise, you know, unless it's something I want to have forever. Um, but you know, with, through interlibrary loan or cooperative um, library consortiums, yeah. um, you can get so much. Mm. Yeah, librarians are your friends. Museum curators are your friends. Talk to them. Historical Society employees. <laughs> I've got one there, and then I'll come to you, okay? Do you have any different rules for setting games in periods that don't exist yet? I mean, I did a game in the Empire of Tashan in the year 20,000. There are no maps. <laughs> Whatever the hell you, you got you got wonderful freedom. <laughs> you have the source material as far as the stories go, and then uh, the, yeah. 
my, my rules for creating future settings, and I've, I've done a few, is to just look back at politics and the way things evolve and then just project it forward. People are people. They're going to be the same, do the same stupid things people have always done. Yeah. The technology may be different. The setting may be different. I'm sure that when we start colonizing Mars, there's going to be some corner of Mars that doesn't feel it's getting a fair deal from the big corporate part of Mars, and then they're going to rebel, and then they're going to have some kind of attack situation, and then you're going to have fracturing, <laughs> and it's the same stupid social story that's happened will they, will over the, and over and over. Will they be throwing space tea? Yes, <laughs> they may. They may be. There may be some kind of a, you know, the the. Um, but no, you, you model your future societies on your past societies with you know some sci-fi aspects thrown in, um, and you just go forward. If you're true to human nature, it will resonate as real when creating a future setting. I, I find I, I write mostly about people. The the settings come secondary to the human interactions. So if the human interactions ring true, it doesn't matter where it's it's set. Mike, just be very patient. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> basically, have any folks ever used the 40th times as a reason? Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess the answer to that. Is but yeah, the, the, the color computer writers fall into two camps: those who do and those who don't. <laughs> but many do. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. Oh, one last one. One interesting comment. So only one of you, I think has mentioned using fiction as a resource. But it might be difficult for you to use fiction as a resource. Oh, there's a lot of great Roman fiction. I'm a contemporary? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm addicted I'm addicted to a a series I forget the author, uh, British author. She, it she be contemporary. Well, you've got fiction written at that time. Yeah. So well, I, I, I have, I have, a, I, I have, I have a fan, I have a fan podcast segment called "Glimpses in the Empire," where I use historical references and I talk about them. There's some wacky shit written in uh, by the histories by Herodotus. Um, I've got a segment where he's talking about the flying snakes of Arabia and the man-eating ants of India in an actual historical book. Oh, and this guy, that, yeah. this guy is considered the father of history, and he's writing about man-eating ants and how you use camels to mine gold from the ants, and then you just let the camels get eaten and run away. You just kind of think, what, what I was mean, it's like, what are you? It, but it's 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 right there, and you look at the the holidays and the I have a whole whole thing about the the sixth the four different hallways Romans celebrate Halloween rituals for the dead that's all historical and it's absolutely bonkers um, I, I've got one coming up that it's a it's an actual ghost story from ancient Athens um, and it's historical written by a noted author as an actual fact that happened about this writer who buys a haunted house in Athens because it's really, really cheap and he's trying to meet a deadline and finish a book. So he decides, I'm just going to write and ignore the ghost. So the ghost is rattling chains over him. He's like, just, just a minute. He's just hold on just a minute. And it's like, this is actually the history. So believe it or not, there's plenty of, uh, uh, it's not fiction, it's history. But so far, we haven't found the man-eating ants of India, so I'm pretty sure it was fiction. But you'll have a different experience with it because it's not likely that your players have ever read that. But 
viewers are likely to be at least familiar with Mrs. Haversham. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but we've all, humans, by their very nature, are storytellers. It's just how much of it survived. And again, use your libraries. <laughs> Go talk to your librarians. Find these weird things. We've got things like the Epic of Gilgamesh. We've got um, the various uh, ancient Egyptian stories about the first magic tricks. Um, you know, and how this guy is performing magic tricks and severing ge- the heads off geese to prove that he has power. So you, we do have those stories. Some have survived really well. Some have survived through later iterations that we have records of. But yeah, we've, humans have always told stories, and there will be shades and, somewhere. And some of those stories are are in text. Some of them on paintings. Some on on cave walls. Folklore, etc., etc. It tends to forget a lot of itself as well. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But draw, if you go draw back far enough, you can find things that you had no idea that happened that nobody ever talks about anymore that they wrote extensively about at the time period when it was considered. Uh, absolutely. It, it, it's really, you know, immerse yourself in as much as you want to. You know, once you step into it and start visiting these museums, start looking up, you know, the books that aren't on the library shelf, but you can find, you know, find in the catalogue, it opens up ideas. And that's what we're talking about. It opens up ideas. And it's ideas that create stories. And you're either retelling an old story, you're finding a new way to retell an old story, or you're telling a new story, you know, inspired by an old story sometimes. Or maybe it's just a new story that's congealed in your head from a visit to the British Museum or wherever it may be, Library of Congress or whatever. But yeah, in actual fiction, I mean, I, I do use fiction extensively. We are certainly called Within. Yeah, and, well, I mean, it incorporates fiction, non-mythos fiction, like there's fictional characters, you know, that's happened a few times in Call of Cthulhu's history, publishing history of, you know, oh, well, we can bring in, you know, the original uh, Gaslight had uh, Sherlock Holmes in there, a scenario with Sherlock Holmes in it. Um, spoiler, but you can find out pretty quickly. Right from the beginning, you're, you're talking to Mycroft. Um, and H.G. Uh, Wells. Uh, so, yeah, and, and mythos fiction, and reading obscure mythos fiction, or going back to fiction that I haven't read in years, annotated fiction is especially useful because you can kind of see, oh, it, it gives you like another lever. It's like, okay, so I know this story by Lovecraft well, but oh, here's some annotations that like give me another rabbit hole to toss myself down and pull more stuff out. Or the Bavarian that um, the Campus Press came out with recently, where it's every version of Lovecraft's story, like from his original notes to his, like how things change. And, you know, and there's like, oh, he changed the name of this, and it's like, well, maybe that's still usable. Maybe there's something I can do with that. You know, it's the Lords of Venus here, but it's the children of Venus there. I was like, what? What's the difference there? Is that? Yeah, and don't feel that you just have to read mythos fiction to write Call of Cthulhu. Read everything, because you never know where that gem is going to be hiding that just clicks in your brain, and you go, oh, right, yes, I know what I can do with this. But yes, fiction of the era gives you something that you might not get from the history book. Mm. Um, You know, you'll get a sense of time and place and of mindset if it's written from that era. So if you want to read, you know, Jane Austen or Edith Wharton or whatever, you know, um, that'll give you some some other ideas on what to do that a historian of that era might not have paid any attention to because who cares and everyone knows this. Yeah. Like telling a, a, group, a room full of color Cthulhu players and keepers, hey, go and read some more. It's a really hard <laughs> ask, isn't it? Right? Thank you for coming. Uh, if you would please thank Christopher Smith. Lynn Hardy, Oscar Rios for coming and uh, thank you for coming too. Thank you.
Hey everybody, before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. They have three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.